church. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Good to have those who are joining us, our live streamers as well. Some of our snowbirds are coming back also, and uh, they were telling me this morning they've been watching live stream our services since they've been gone, so that's good to know. Hey, if you are new to us this morning, we've been in this sermon series entitled Killing Kryptonite. As you probably know, kryptonite is Superman's weakness, and so we've been looking at the Christian's weakness, and the, the correspondent kryptonite is sin, of course, in the general category, but we have focused in specifically on the sin of idolatry. And we may often think of I- idols as statues and carvings, but we've got a different working definition of idolatry. Uh, idolatry is when someone puts aside, this could be a believer or unbeliever, when someone puts aside what God clearly reveals in order to satisfy cravings or desires contrary to his ways. Now that actually fits with uh, Paul's teaching. when He was talking about covetousness, an unholy desire, or craving for something. And he writes in Ephesians 5, 5, No covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now we've all done this. We've all done this at different times in our lives. We have sought to satisfy desires and cravings in ways that are not pleasing to God, whether that's before we became a Christian or even after we became a Christian. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul writes, All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our flesh. And so repentance is absolutely necessary for us. In last week's message, we were looking at this scriptural phrase, repent of your sin and turn to God. We saw that over and over, repent of your sin and turn to God. This was the message of John the Baptist. It was the message of Jesus. It was the message in the evangelistic preaching of Paul, in the evangelistic preaching of Peter. It's the consistent message of the New Testament, repent of your sin and turn to God. So there's no turning to God, we said, apart from repentance. Repentance is absolutely necessary to come into a saving relationship with the Lord and also to maintain our good, healthy fellowship with God as well. So what I want to do today is take a deeper dive into repentance and take a look at what that word actually means and entails and embraces. You know, in the Old Testament, they had a, when the Israelites were repenting, they had this outward expression but they would wear sackcloth and put ashes on their heads. Sackcloth and ashes. Repent and sackcloth and ashes. Well, what is sackcloth? I, always, I used to think it was like burlap, but it's not. Sackcloth was actually made out of goat, goat skin and, uh, and goat hair. And not the, not the good kind. Cashmere, I learned, is made out of goat hair. But it's nice and soft and comfortable. But their sackcloth would be made out of that coarse kind of goat hair, like what you'd have in a hair, a stiff hairbrush. Very uncomfortable to wear, and that was kind of part of the point. But their repentance didn't always go to the heart. Now, in the New Testament usage of this word repentance, the word, the original word is metanoia. It's used in verb form and noun form over 50 times in the New Testament. Its basic meaning is a change of mind. A change means a change of mind. But if that's all we were to say about it, we might lose the force of what's included in this word. For instance, I plan to have Chinese for lunch after church today. Oh, I changed my mind. I'm going to have Mexican instead. Well, is it that superficial? I mean, I don't necessarily hate Chinese now. still love Chinese. I just changed my mind and decided to have Mexican. No, it's, it's much deeper than that. So let's look at the power of repentance today. And first of all, the power of repentance for salvation for salvation. What do you, what's the image that comes into your mind when you think of repent? 
Now, one that comes into my mind is a wild-eyed crazy standing on the street corner yelling at passers-by, repent for the end is near. But really, this, this word and this concept of repentance embraces three primary meanings. And one is that we change our mind in the sense that we come to hate sin. There may have been a time in our life when we enjoyed sin. There's pleasure in a sin for a season, the Bible says. And we embrace sin, maybe plan ways to sin. But we come to where we hate sin. Paul writes in Ephesians, or rather in Romans 12, 9, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. We are supposed to hate things as Christians. We're to hate sin. Why would we hate sin? Because we come to understand what sin does to God. It breaks God's heart. It's sin, our sin, that put Jesus on the cross. How sin is destructive to human nature. I hate alcohol in a sense. I'm not alcohol per se, but alcoholism. When you see what happens to people, and by the way, I was reading this past week, one in every eight people in America is an alcoholic. And when you see what alcoholism does to a person, it destroys the dignity and the human nature that God has built into them and other kinds of drug addictions. I mean, an addict will hit their mom over the head with a stick and take the money out of her purse in order to get their next high, things they would never ordinarily do held many funerals prematurely for young men and women who've died because they've become entrapped in that so all sin is like that all sin is destructive so we come to hate what sin does to people what it hate what it does to god and it put jesus on the cross now here's a second aspect of repentance we change our minds so that we have remorse for the sin that we commit you know, you read about King David in the Old Testament, and he committed adultery, and he committed murder, and then he was confronted, and he repented, and he writes Psalm 51. The whole psalm is during this season of repentance and remorse in his life. In Psalm 51:17, he writes, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So he had remorse for his sin. We have remorse for our sin, not just that we got caught, but because we sin and we hurt God and ourselves and others. And then the third aspect, we're talking about the power of repentance, is a desire, a determination to change. We're going to do differently in the future than we did in the past. We don't want to continue in that path of repentance. Paul had written to the Corinthian church, and he had challenged them to repent, and they did. And then reflecting on that and the godly sorrow that they had, he writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 11, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, concern to clear yourselves, indignation, alarm, zeal, and such readiness to punish wrong, you showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. So they want to change. So it's hatred of sin. It's remorse for sin. It's a determination to change in the future. <clears throat> you know, a couple of months ago, I had the grand boys. I, uh, I spent the day with them. We went out to the zoo. They had the day off from school. And so it was just the boys, Carson and Caleb, six and eight. And we, we spent the whole day out there together. The Brevard County Zoo, we started off riding bikes. on the got a be beautiful nature uh, bike trail out there now. And then uh, we did the zip line there, or they did the zip line. And then we went to the pool area in the zoo and just saw the animals. Just spent the whole day out there. And I'm treating them the whole time, feeding them, having a good time. Now, early on, they said, Papa, can we have ice cream today? You know, after at the, cause they got that at the zoo. And I said, yeah, after you eat a good lunch, you know, we'll have ice cream. Well... By the time we got over to the concession uh, to get our ice cream, it was 4.30, and the concession had closed at 4 o'clock. 
And so I, <clears throat> I said, boys, I'm sorry, but <clears throat> concession's closed. You know, and they had a deadline. I had to be home at a certain time, so we weren't going to be able to stop on the way home. So I'm not going to be able to get ice cream today. Well, uh, they were very disappointed about that. They said, but Papa, you promised. You promised we'd have ice cream today. I said, no, 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 I know, but there's nothing I can do about that. Sometimes they just got fixated on this, and, and Carson started to, he said, Papa, you crossed a line. He said, Papa, you crossed a line. And uh, he said that like half a dozen times, and Caleb picked up on it. And we're driving home. Papa, you crossed the line. I, I thought it was kind of funny, but also, you know, a little inappropriate. So I, I lectured him a little bit about being grateful. And then I, I dropped him off at home. Well, they made the mistake of telling their mom and dad that they told Papa that he crossed the line. And uh, mom and dad weren't happy about that. Not that I had crossed the line, but that the boys had reacted that way. And so the next day, I get these nice, handwritten apology notes from Carson and Caleb. We're so sorry, Papa. You know, we were ungrateful. Thank you for spending the day with us. And I said, boys, these are great notes here. Thank you for writing these. They said, yeah, our parents made us write that. <laughs> now, I am not sure that that was authentic repentance on their part, that they hated what they did and had genuine remorse and determined to change. But that's okay. They're just little boys. They'll grow up into it. But we're adults, aren't we? We are adults. And we need to have understanding of what it means when we repent. We're not just sorry that we got caught. We're not looking back at sin and saying, boy, I sure would wish I could do that if, God, if only God would let me. We hate that sin. We have genuine remorse, and we have a determination to change in the future. Now, repentance, is we don't necessarily have the ability to change until the Holy Spirit comes in and, and, and enables us to do that. I'll get to that next week. But you have to have that determination or we won't do the things that God tells us to do in order to engage that power. All right, so that's the power of repentance for salvation. I want to look at the power of repentance in another aspect, and that's for restoration. The power of repentance for restoration. In Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now, so, not only are we to live for God in our own personal lives, but we're in community here, and we are to help other people live for God as well. Sometimes people need help to repent. Sometimes we need help to repent. We are to help them do that. And we love talking to other people. If we're going to talk about the gospel, about forgiveness and grace and eternal life, the promises of God, but sometimes we're a little reticent about this whole repentant aspect. Somebody, we, we envision them saying, you mean I got to give this up and I'm not going to be able to do that anymore and that doesn't sound like good news. We're a little bit reticent till we remember what we're, yeah, you are going to give that up and yeah, you're not going to do that anymore. But that's sin. It's destructive. It always leads to death. It's a good thing. It's, a, it's an invitation, not just a rebuke, the call to repentance. Now I want to kind of illustrate this a little bit using the kings of Judah in the Old Testament. So you know how America went through a civil war, and for almost five years you had north and south, and were divided into two countries at war. Well, likewise, if you know the history of Israel in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was divided as well. They went through a civil war, and for many generations you had a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Israel in the north, ten tribes, Judah in the south, the two tribes. And they each had their own succession of kings. 
We read about these kings in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Now I want to talk about the kings of Judah. The kings of Israel were all worthless. They were all evil and wicked. None of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We don't need to, need to talk about them, with the exception of Jehu, and he, even he went astray toward the end. We're going to look. Now, other than Saul and David and Solomon, who reigned over the United Kingdom, there were 20 kings over the southern kingdom of Judah. I used to think there were two basic categories of kings, those who did right in the eyes of the Lord and those who were wicked. But there's really three categories. There are those who did right in the eyes of the Lord, those who were wicked, and those who were somewhere in between. They were half-hearted. They did not wholeheartedly. They did right in their own personal lives sometimes, but they did not help their people to repent from idolatry. And this is what we're talking about. They did not work to rid the land of idolatry. And it was, it, so there's three categories of kings, and it was only during these kings that not only followed God in their own personal life, but also helped up their people to repent and rid the land of idolatry, it was only during their reign that the land of Judah and the entire kingdom flourished and prospered. Only during their reign. In these other reigns of these other kings, there were constant attacks and defeat and, and depression in the land. So we're going to see that. I'm going to run through these kings real quick. You know, if there's 22 kings or so, we've got to go fast. But uh, I've color-coded them for you. So when we put the name of a king up here, if it's in red, that's a king who's on fire for the Lord and wholeheartedly follows God. If the king's name is in yellow, that's a wicked king. who never He's a yellow-bellied king who never did any good for God. And then if the name is in green, that's a half-hearted king, half-hearted king. I was thinking of Jesus in the book of Revelation who said, I'd rather you be hot for me or cold against me rather than lukewarm. I'll just spit you out of my mouth. So I'm thinking that he's green because that represents a sick king. It's halfway in between. All right, so forget about Saul. We'll start with David. David ruled over the United Kingdom, wholeheartedly followed the Lord, no idolatry during the land when David was ruling and the, and the people flourished. Secondly with Solomon. Solomon's in green. Because he was half-hearted. And he started off great, but toward, toward the end, he married many foreign wives who led those wives. They led him into idolatry. Second Kings 11.4. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods. Instead of being completely faithful to the Lord God, his father, David, as David had been, Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Uh, third king is Rehoboam. He's yellow, wicked king. Fourth king, Abijam, yellow, wicked king. Fifth king, these are the kings of Judah, Asa, wholeheartedly followed the Lord. Second Chronicles 14.2, Asa did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord as God. He removed the foreign altars and the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah poles. These are all idolatry. He's rooting out idolatry. And here's the result, 14.5. So Asa's kingdom enjoyed a period of peace. You see the connection there. Sixth king, Jehoshaphat, on fire for the Lord. Second Chronicles 17.6. He was deeply committed to the ways of the Lord. He removed the pagan shrines and Asherah poles from Judah. Second Chronicles 17.10. 
Then the fear of the Lord fell over the surrounding kingdoms so that none of them wanted to declare war on Jehoshaphat. So the land enjoys a time of peace because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord. Seventh king, Jehoram, wicked. Eighth king, Ahaziah, wicked. Ninth ruler, Athaliah, the queen, wicked. Tenth ruler, Joash, half-hearted. Second Chronicles 24, 17. The leaders of Judah persuaded Joash to listen to their advice. They decided to abandon the temple of the Lord. They worshipped Asherah poles and idols instead. And because of this, divine anger fell on Judah and Jerusalem. See the, con the connection between idolatry and the land being punished by God. Amaziah is the 11th king, half-hearted. 2 Chronicles 25.2. Amaziah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, but not wholeheartedly. 2 Kings 14.4. He did not destroy the pagan shrines, and the people still offered sacrifices and burned incense there. Twelfth king, Uzziah, half-hearted. Thirteenth king, Jotham, half-hearted. Fourteenth king, Ahaz, wicked. Fifteenth king, Hezekiah, wholeheartedly followed the Lord. Second Kings 18.3, he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah poles. The land prospered. 16, Manasseh, wicked. 17, Ammon, wicked. 18th king, Josiah. Probably the best of them all. Uh, 2 Kings 23, 4. Then the king instructed, this is Josiah, the high priest, to remove the Lord's from the Lord's temple the articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of heaven. 2 Kings 23, 25. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the law of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. Next four kings are wicked. Jehoahaz, wicked. Jehoiakim, wicked. Jehoiakim, wicked. Zedekiah, wicked. Of the 20 kings we looked at after David, 22 total kings, only five wholeheartedly followed the Lord. David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And the connection is the people flourished when idolatry was removed from the land. Now here's my application. You may not be a king or a queen. In fact, you're not. You might even not be a supervisor at work. But you and I have a sphere of influence. We have our little kingdom. We have a family. Uh, well, maybe we have a job that we work at. We certainly have a neighborhood. We absolutely have a church. And we are, to, in our sphere of influence, not just be concerned with ourselves, but to help other people repent. We need to be the red king to someone, to somebody. Often, people need help to repent. And it's not a negative thing that we're doing. It's a positive. To the degree that that person repents, their life will flourish and be blessed by God. And the same for us. So I call this the power of repentance for restoration. And then thirdly, uh, let's think about the power of repentance for the assurance of our salvation, our we know we have assurance of salvation and the continuing assurance because of repentance. So, there are three scenarios that plague believers when it comes to sin. Number one, are those who have simply developed hard hearts and seared conscience and they don't even care anymore and they're not even trying to live a righteous life. Uh, God speaks of them in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 8.12. Are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. And then there are those who understand we're saved by grace through faith apart from our works, our good works, or even our bad works, but have somehow 
interpreted that as grace becoming a license to sin. And maybe it's not necessary to try to strive to live a holy and pure and obedient life. There are many passages in the Bible that warn against that attitude. Romans 6.1, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue in it any longer? Jude 4, some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Matthew 7, 23, Jesus speaking to those who claimed to be his followers but were not obeying his commands. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there's that. And then there's a third category. And that is Christians who love God and have determined they don't want to sin, but have become entrapped in some kind of sinful stronghold that Satan has in their life. And they sin and repent and confess and genuinely their heart is broken never going to do that again and then they go back and do that again now for that situation i want us to hear what jesus instructed his disciples when it came to forgiveness in luke 17 3 jesus said if another believer sins rebuke that person and then if there is repentance forgive and even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Now, this is a high standard of forgiveness that we're called to. Can you imagine somebody sinning against you personally seven times in one day, same sin, each time comes back and repents, I'm sorry, I will never do it again. They do that seven times. You might start to doubt the authenticity of their repentance. But nevertheless, Jesus says, no, you continue to forgive. Why are we called to that standard of grace and mercy? Because we are, we are to forgive, forgive others as God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32, forgive other people as God in Christ has forgiven you. And this is how God has forgiven us. When we come to him, we, could, we might sin against God and genuine, genuinely repent. And we say, is that even possible seven times in a row? Is that genuine repentance? Well, apparently it's possible. You can't out the grace of God. And each time, you know, I may come and say, God, here it is. It's me again. Same old thing. And picture God's response. Oh, have you been here before? His grace forgives. And where that crosses into grace is a license for sin, I don't know. But I do believe this. Even though God's grace is available to us for the assurance of our forgiveness, that is not the situation that God wants us in. God does not want us to be entrapped in a sinful stronghold where we want to be free, but we are not free from the dominion of sin. Uh, the author of the book upon which this sermon series is largely based is John Bevere. And John Bevere writes this. When I was 12 years old, some friends introduced me to pornographic magazines. We would share them with each other, and needless to say, it wasn't long before I became addicted. At age 19, I gave my life to Jesus Christ at a meeting at my fraternity house. Many sins immediately lost their power over my life. However, pornography and lust did not lose their hold. I was still bound and not able to walk away. 
Every time I succumbed to this sin, I quickly repented and sincerely asked God for forgiveness. I was now in a vicious battle. I didn't want to look at porn because I knew it was contrary to godly behavior, but it seemed to be more powerful than my strength to resist. In 1982, at the age of 23, I married Lisa. I thought the lust would fade away because now I was married to the girl of my dreams, but it didn't. It actually grew worse. It negatively affected Lisa's and my relationship in many ways. In 1983, I entered the ministry and still battled with porn. My conviction that it was wrong was growing stronger. Our church was one of the most recognized churches in America, and we hosted many notable visiting preachers and speakers. And one of them was well-known for his deliverance ministry. In the fall of 1984, he came to our church to do a seminar, and when we were alone, I humbled myself and was brutally honest about my struggle with lust. He prayed a very strong prayer over me. But to my disappointment, in the weeks and months that followed, I experienced no change. I continued to fight lust afterwards. Now let me put the, I'm going to push the pause button right here. You know how this boy said to me, Papa, you crossed the line? We can all cross a line when it comes to sin. Where sin changes from the humiliating exception in our lives to the embarrassing rule. Any kind of sin can become an addiction. Pornography can. Drugs or alcohol can. There are 12-step groups for gambling anonymous and for those who have eating disorders. Any, any kind of sin can become an addiction. And God does not want us to be trapped with a, a satanic stronghold in our life, and we do not have to be trapped. When this happens, it's because we either do not know or have not exercised the tools that God has given to us to be free from sin. And so what I want to deal with next week, next week, is this issue. As it'll be the final sermon in this series and how to be free from a sinful addiction. And we're going to break out the big tools, I mean the big guns. We're going to get the pneumatic drill. We're going to get the power saw. We're going to get the sledgehammer. And these are the tools that God has, in fact, given to us and that we can exercise to be free from a sinful addiction. And we're going to use uh, pornography as our example. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for calling us to repentance. It's good to be called away from sinful practices that break your heart and that destroy human lives and that only lead to death. And so once again, this morning, collectively, as a congregation, we humble ourselves before you, and we repent. We renew this attitude of hatred towards sin, remorse for sin, and the determination and desire to change with your help in the future. In Jesus' name we pray.